So if you've been with us um, the last while, you know we're doing a series on the crucifixion, looking at these different pictures and ways of looking at these different angles into the cross, the death of Jesus. And so today we're looking at substitution. Um, we're getting to, to the heart of what happened on the cross. Uh, just last week, I think it was Friday night, we were doing our, our family time. We uh, do a little uh, devotional time together and we'd actually got to this section. We went through Luke's gospel and we were looking at the trial and then the death of Jesus. And it sort of came back to us um, how we used to do that a few years ago. Uh, it was Molly in particular when she was about age five or six. And I remember we had this little Easter book. Um, I think we got it actually through Dublin West or maybe someone in Dublin West gave it to us. And it was a small little pen book, you know, for kids, lots of pictures, not a lot of writing, 15 pages or so. But Molly would ask to skip the page where Jesus dies. And she just couldn't, she just hated that. It made her sad in some way. She couldn't listen to it. So whenever we read that story, we'd read through the life of Jesus and then the Last Supper and then the trial. And then we'd read the resurrection. We just skipped straight to the resurrection. It was too much to deal with the cross and what happened there. And I think there are real issues there for us. I think there are things about how we perceive the cross that are hard for us to understand, hard for us maybe to live with. Uh, Antoine Vergote was a Belgian priest and a theologian and a thinker. Um, and this is his question and his comment on the cross and in particular on this model or picture of the cross that we're looking at today substitution he said this can one imagine a more obsessional phantasm than that of a god who demands the torturing of his own son to death a satisfaction for his anger i really think there's something in that it's a real critique of this picture of the cross. Because what we're talking about today when we talk about substitution, I, I think we traditionally use two words, penal substitution. They go together. The word penal is this sense that God punishes. Penal to do with punishment, that God punishes sin. We see here the words in the quote of anger and satisfaction that God is punishing. But then secondly, it's also substitution. He's punishing someone else, his own son. And this particular writer just can't imagine how that could be seen as a good thing. It seems um, horrors to him. So what exactly are we talking about when we look at this picture of the cross? And can we still believe in it in a world where we're sort of critical of violence and trying to step back from violence? and judgment, and we, we don't like those words or those thoughts, and in many ways, rightly, how can we still hold to this picture of the cross? Well, I'm gonna try and answer three questions uh, this morning as a way of looking at it and bring us through it. The first is, does this picture of the cross mean that it's all about guilt and sin? That we're left with this culture, this religious culture, all about guilt and sin, and that's what God cares about, and God is obsessed with those things. I mean, the readings that Stephen read for us, Romans 1, is about God's wrath against sin. Chapter 8 talks about condemnation, sin being condemned. These are real things, real aspects 
of God and of the scriptures. The issue is when we focus on just one picture of the cross. We highlight one way of looking at it, one angle from the scriptures, and then it all becomes about guilt and punishment. And this is a real danger for us in our tradition. It's a danger for evangelical theology that we highlight one picture of the cross, this one in particular, maybe as the only one or as the central one and put the other pictures of the cross into a very distant sect. And we get left with this. We get left with the cross where we, we talk about it as a transaction, where we use cold terminology. We see it as some form of accounting transaction that happens to, to win us salvation. It's a thought that sees God as just trying to save individuals and, and save them from this world and bring them to heaven. And, and he sort of looks for those individuals who are tortured with Catholic guilt. And they're the ones who will see their guilt and confess and turn. Now, that's a caricature, a bit of a, a straw man. But if we're left with just this one piece of the jigsaw, then I think that's where we can end up. We've been using that analogy throughout of the cross being like this jigsaw, all these different pictures, which are different pieces of the jigsaw. And it's only when we put them together and they interrelate, they, they fit in together, that you get the full picture. If we just have this one picture, then I don't know, what do you call a one piece jigsaw? I think simplistic doesn't even, it's not even a jigsaw, is it? But one piece. My kids, at least when they were, you know, 18 months had two and three piece jigsaws, not a one piece jigsaw. So, so that's the danger of just the one piece. But when we've come here after two weeks looking at Christ as victor, Christ the victor, about how Jesus won victory on the cross, and we put these two things together, we avoid that critique. Because what we see then is that the story of the scriptures is Jesus winning victory over the powers of sin and evil and restoring his creation. And to do that, sin and evil had to be judged, condemned, so they could be eradicated from his beautiful world. They fit together. It's having the one piece that leads to this caricature. And so we can see that in uh, the readings that we've read. Chapter one, we see God's wrath against guilt and sin. But right at the start of chapter one, we see what the good news is. That the good news is not just um, God's anger against sin. At the start, the introduction to his letter, Paul talks about the gospel, the good news. And the good news is about Jesus, the gospel regarding his son. The gospel about Jesus. And what is it about Jesus? That he was appointed or declared, the other reading, declared the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. That Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord. He has become king and he's taking control of this world. That's the good news. And God's anger, God's judgment on sin is an essential part of that, but not the sum total of that. We see it again in chapter eight. Chapter eight, which is now talking about the cross and, and, and how God exercises his wrath. And when it gets there, the context is this. For what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son. Now, uh, it just seems like maybe a, a clause in the sentence. 
but it, it, it shows us that when God sending Jesus was not just this one-off um, moment in history, that it was attached to a broader story, what the law was powerless to do. There's a backstory here. There are past dealings that God has had with his people. And the climax and culmination of those dealings is God sending his own son. And so we've got to place the cross into that bigger story. And it's only by doing that that we get the fuller picture of what's going on here. The law had already been given by God, but it was powerless, so God sent Jesus. But the law and the covenant are the backstory. The covenant is that God has chosen a people to love, to bless, to commit himself to, to be faithful to. The law was a gift from him to guide them and direct them. It hasn't worked, so now he's sending Jesus. But that's the backstory. And so that puts the cross and the language of, of condemnation and judgment, which, which part of our culture abhors, it puts it into this fuller story, this broader picture of love and relationship and God restoring the world. And we have to do that. We have to do that to avoid the caricatures. So it's not all about guilt and sin. Guilt and sin have to be dealt with for the broader story of God's world and God's love? That's the first question. But the second one is, is, is this, does God, you know, okay, it's, it's, you've said now it's not the full picture. It's got to be put into a broader story, but are we still saying that God punishes or that God condemns? Is that, is that really what we're saying still in, in this day and age? And it is. And I think we have to say that because we have to have some way of dealing with sin and evil in our world. If we don't, then sin or evil will, will just run rampage um, in our world. There has to be something that stops and says no. And that's what God's wrath is. It's not really an aspect of God maybe we like talking about. It's there in the scriptures in, in the chapter one reading that was read for us. And we need to be really clear about what God's wrath is. God's wrath is not God losing his temper. It's not that God has come home after a bad day at the office, lots of stress, he's a bit tired, he's had a bad commute home in the car, and he loses his temper and has a bit of rage at the kids. That is not it. His anger is not like our anger or how we normally express our anger. It is God's settled opposition to what is wrong, to evil, what is wrong in this world. i give you a quote there. Um, someone... Uh, I was working with him Praxis for a few years and used to quote this a lot and I've really come to love it. Paul Tillich, a theologian from the 20th century, says this, the strange work of love is to destroy all that which is not love. And I find that really helpful because it puts, it puts the word love in there twice to help us reconcile God's anger and God's judgment. It is the work of tough love. You know, the strange part of love, what we might call tough love, is that you have to be anti what is not love. You have to be against it. Destroy it until it is turned. And that's, again, what we see in our readings. In the chapter one reading, it's the wrath of God is being revealed against godlessness and against wickedness. It's against things that are wrong and that deserve anger and judgment. We, we have to keep that context there. We read on in, in Romans 1, and um, it, it clarifies what both of those terms are for us. Godlessness in verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. This independence 
um, away from God and refusing to give thanks to God. And wickedness then, and the word is repeated in verse 29 at the start of this list of all the activities um, and thoughts that are wrong within humanity. Verse 29, they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, and it goes on. It's a shocking portrayal. And surely those things cannot allow free reign in our world. We have to be anti them. Now, I think this is a powerful argument, personally, and I love that quote, but I don't think we're going to convince our world of this. Not fully. And that's what this passage says as well. It says as part of that fall and part of that walking away from God. God has, their thinking has become futile. God has given them over to a depraved mind. That's, that's us, that's humanity. So our thinking has gone as well. So we can't fully see the logic of this. And there's always going to be a sense in which people struggle with different aspects of, of who God is and God's character and God's actions in this world. And in our culture at this time in history, we struggle with this sense of God judging. Maybe we've been told too much about God's judging in the past. But there is a good judgment. But I think we need to think carefully about this in, in our culture as Irish people. Um, uh, speaking too much of this has given risen to a climate of a religious climate, which is seems to be about guilt and sin and punishment and um, going back decades in our land. And that is not helpful. And, and I think some would argue that it's that climate which allowed things like mother and baby homes, which we've been talking about in the last years in the media uh, to flourish. And that is not good. And we need to, to stand back and say, yes, that clearly was wrong. And there was something of a cold religious climate which allowed that to happen. A climate with little grace. But what's intriguing about this passage when, when Paul is talking about God's wrath is that as he lists through all these negatives, all these things that humanity do wrong and which are wicked, he finishes with positives that they don't do with how humanity hasn't lived up to its vocation to be images, to be mirrors of God and his goodness in this world. And it's the lack of good things that they've done. Verse 31, they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. Love and mercy. I mean, surely the things that we look back with, um, with horror in our past, our religious past as a country, are, are in many ways those, those words sum them up, no love and no mercy. And God's wrath comes against those things too. It's part of the same sentence. And actually we need to ask ourselves, if God didn't express his wrath, his anger and his judgment against the lack of love and the lack of mercy, then where else are people gonna get justice? You know, we've seen the controversy over reports that have been written and yet we're unhappy with that report and talk of reparations and talk of all sorts of things, but nothing fully heals the wound. Nothing can really compensate for the evil that's been done. That there needs to be justice and that justice doesn't come in this world. So we do need God to step in for justice, something we do long for in today's world to come.
So it's not all about guilt and sin. It's a bigger story of God's love, God restoring the world. But as part of that, sin needs to be punished. It needs to be judged. But how can we see it as a good thing or indeed God, this, this, this good loving God, how could it be as his plan to punish someone else? Are we really saying that God punishes someone else? And I want to say no to this. I'm going to be careful on my language. I think language is really important here. I want to say no because I think the better way of phrasing it is that God offers himself. God doesn't punish someone else. God offers himself. See, this critique um, of the cross and of this view of substitution on the cross has been around for a while. I've seen it in theology books, and I've also had conversation in pubs where people have talked about them. And the theology books have talked about cosmic child abuse. That was a, a famous phrase uh, maybe 15 years ago. And I've heard been in conversations where people have talked that was a bit of a dysfunctional family, God punishing the son. And what those arguments have done is they have not fully accounted for the Trinity, for the fact that we believe in a God who is three people in one God, the Trinity. And the part of our traditional beliefs about the Trinity is that the Trinity always acts together, the three people act together, that you can't separate them in these actions. So it is not God punishing Jesus. And in fact, the scriptures make it clear that Jesus offered himself. We see it in how Jesus acted under trial, of how he, he didn't walk away. He didn't defend himself. We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see it here in black and white in John 10. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus offered himself. It's not God punishing someone else. It's God offering himself for the world and the other thing I want to say here is that when we look at a few parts in particular we see that the focus of God's punishment his judgment of sin is on sin itself and not on Jesus it's on sin itself so this is our reading in Romans chapter 8 and I find this helpful even if I don't fully understand it. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, normally when that, that phrase is used, that phrase would be, he condemned a person. That, that's what you'd expect for that use of the verb. But actually, it's sin itself that is condemned. And to Corinthians 5, uh, we get this similar notion where it says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So there's something about in Jesus on the cross, sin itself was condemned. There's something that in some way Jesus was made to be sin. I think there's a mystery in exactly what that means, but it seems to be saying to me that sin is the prime focus of God's judgment, of God's punishment. But when we read the full sentence, he condemned sin in the flesh. And this brings us to the great dilemma that God faced. He condemned sin in the flesh. It was in humanity. 
And that's where sin had to be condemned because that's where sin lives. That's where sin resides. Romans 5, sin entered the world through one man, through Adam. So sin is this, this power and this force that works its way and wreaks havoc and, and devastation and destruction, but it does it through us. We have colluded. We have made choices. We have given in. And this is the great dilemma that God faces, that God made a good world and he made us as the, the pinnacle of creation. We are his prized possession. Um, in Exodus language, we're his treasured possession. But yet we have colluded with this sin and evil that he wants to eradicate, to restore his world. So what does God do? God has to punish sin and evil, but it lives inside us. So the only place it can be condemned or punished is in the flesh. And so the question that is left for God is, in whose flesh will it be condemned if he is going to judge? And out of his love for his own creation, out of his love for men and women and children, he says, no, I want to save them, though they've gone astray and though they are riddled with sin. I want to save them. And so I offer myself to take on this very flesh myself, and I will take on this sin, be made sin in some way, and become the focus of that judgment myself. The judge is judged in our place. That's the solution. I want to read you this quote from, from Fleming Rutledge. Uh, she's an American preacher, retired now. Um, has written a mighty six or seven hundred page book on the crucifixion, um, which is great in many ways. And this is her quote. Jesus Christ absorbs into himself the divine sentence against sin and death. When Paul says God made him to be sin, he can be understood to say that in the tormented, crucified body of the Son, the entire universe of sin and every kind of evil are concentrated and judged, not just forgiven, but definitively, finally, and permanently judged and separated from God and his creation. I think that's a great quote. There's so much in that. But Jesus at the center. The judgment is against sin itself. And that the bigger story is that sin and evil are removed from God's good creation. That's what we're talking about. In uh, Brazilian culture, so I'm led to believe, um, there is a phrase that's become part of popular culture, which is piranha ox. Piranha ox. And it comes from the practice of Brazilian cowboys when they were um, marching their herd of, of cattle, say, and for seeking fresh pasture, they would often have to cross a river. And on certain rivers, um, there would be a flock of piranha in that water. As you know, uh, piranha are vicious, um, small fish, but with vicious teeth. Um, and when they operate together, it can cause devastation. So the practice, which became known as piranha ox, is that the cowboys, to get the flock across the river, to seek fresh pasture for the good of the flock is they would take the weakest animal in the flock and they would sacrifice it. They would uh, cut open some of its veins so that blood would flow and they would put it downstream in the river. And with that blood flowing, all the piranha 
would sense the blood and they would come and they devour that ox or that cow. And it meant that the rest of the flock could safely cross the river further upstream and find fresh pasture. Now, in that example, it would be the weakest animal, the one that wasn't worth very much, the, the one whose shelf life was already limited that they would sacrifice. In our faith, in the person of Jesus, the person of highest value comes, offers himself, not forced, but of his own accord, offers himself as a sacrifice that all the piranhas of, of sin um, and uh, evil um, are inflicted upon him. And so that actually the sinful and diseased humanity can cross over safely as everything uh, comes onto that one person of Jesus. And that's why we, we celebrate. We celebrate because it's part of this bigger story. It eradicates by judgment what is wrong in our world. And it does it by saving us from that judgment ourselves and letting us be in a new world. The force of Romans chapter 8 comes from verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of this, because of all that we've just said, because he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus, his own son, who offered himself, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free. We go free. We enter freely into this new world that God is building because of Jesus. Amen.